Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. Hey guys, what's good? You're plugged into episode 147. Let's get this going. So my guest here with me on this episode is Dr. Thomas Stark. Thomas is a physics PhD who once designed microchips, was an engineer for Rolls-Royce, lectured at University of Oxford, all before applying his knowledge of modelling to financial markets, working out a fund and then joining a well-regarded Sydney prop trading firm as a quantitative developer and trader. And it's only very recently that he's left this role. Thomas was great to chat with. Not only did we discuss topics related to quantitative trading, strategy development and robustness, but also his infatuation with the rise of artificial intelligence and quantum computing. I think this conversation begins around about the 50 minute mark, roughly. As you'll hear, we mentioned quite a few links, resources, and different things during this episode. You can find all this curated at chatwithtraders.com slash 147. And while you're there, if you're feeling generous, please pick up a Chat With Traders t-shirt to support the podcast. Just click the t-shirt link in the main menu. And finally, I'd like to give a quick shout out to Kelly Scott at Trading Technologies. She's the one responsible for introducing me to Thomas and helping to tee up this interview. So thanks very much, Kelly. That's it. I'm Aaron Firefield. This is Chat With Traders Podcast. Here is my guest, Thomas Stark. Hi, Aaron. Hey, Thomas. How you doing? Good. How are you? <laughs> I'm all right. It's... <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm telling you, it's not been my week this week. Oh, really? Yeah, uh, I was uh, interviewing someone yesterday and we're about 20 minutes into the interview. It was going pretty well. And then uh, we had a power cut here at home. Everything just switched off, obviously, and I, I lost everything. Well, when I say everything, I lost the recording. So Really? That was a pain. Yeah, but um, it's all right. We've, we've rescheduled for... A couple of weeks' time, but uh, <laughs> oh man, <laughs> I can imagine that must be gutting. Right, yeah, bit of a, mm. a black swan event. It's the first time it's happened since um, 
you know, I've yeah. been doing the podcast. Yeah, these things happen, I guess. And especially because you do so many interviews, there's bound to be uh, occasional hiccups. Right, exactly, exactly. But uh, anyway, how have you been recovered from your cold and all of that? Yeah, slowly getting there, but still, you know, it's still a bit funny. Um, I'm still not 100%, um, but I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm more than okay to talk. I've been working quite a bit, so... But I still, I still feel it. It's, it's been, it's been a real drag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, traveling often does that as well. How did you go in Singapore? How was Quang Con? Uh, it was really nice. Um, I really enjoyed it. It's always good to meet interesting people. So I'm uh, friends with Andreas Klenov, and it's always nice to, um, you know, ex- exchange ideas with him, especially to hear about his uh, ideas about, uh, you know, Bitcoin and and more cryptocurrency things and also uh the the whole quantopian crew they're, they're really nice people mm. and uh, i always enjoy hanging out with them uh very interesting oh that's good and what did you what did you speak on what was your talk about my talk was on how to um was actually on over on overfitting and how you analyze um strategy parameters so Let's assume you um, backtest a strategy and you want to know whether that strategy has any merit at all. You know, and most people, they just um, optimize that and they find the best parameter set and um, then just see whether that works going ahead, which is, you know, the traditional way of doing things. And um, you're probably aware that recently there have been a bunch of papers coming out on uh, something called system parameter permutation and basically the idea is that rather than throwing away most of your um, uh, data from your test set you run your whole strategy uh, through the training and the test set equally and then uh, you do something uh, like a linear regression between the results from the training set and the test set and if you can see that there is a, a correlation between them. You can say that that strategy that you've developed has some sort of predictive power, and uh, that can really help to uh, say whether you know your your strategy has any merit. Of course, there has to be a bunch more tests, uh, but uh, that's really uh, one interesting way of looking at it. And so, what I did at Quancom was to. Uh, it's an experiment to, uh, instead of just giving a talk and showing some graphs, I actually presented a whole uh, IPython notebook with all the uh, calculations and even the strategy with the optimization on it and demonstrated that uh, live in front of everyone. And I think it went down really well. Oh, excellent. Is that IPython notebook, is that available on your website or is that just, just for the talk? Yes, it is actually available on GitHub. Okay. So I made that available. I can send you the link to that. Yeah, we'll 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 get that link and we'll stick that in the show notes in case anyone wants to check it sure. out. Sure. Now I don't know if I understood you correctly when you were describing what you spoke about there, but you're talking about using the um, in sample and out of sample together all at once. Did I? Exactly. Yes. So, so what that is is uh, you look at the in-sample and at the same time uh, you look at the out-of-sample. So you run all your parameter sets. So the strategy has, say, 
say in this case, I just used a really, really simple uh, a moving average crossover strategy just for demonstration because otherwise it would run way too long. I just uh, ran it through an in-sample period and then through an out-of-sample period. And I basically took all the data that I have from both periods. And then what you can do is uh, a regression between the results. So you could, for example, um, use uh, regress the P&Ls with each other or the sharp ratios or even the drawdowns. And, and then you look at uh, whether... Uh, your in-sample period actually does inform the out-of-sample period. And if you find that there's some sort of correlation, then um, you can say, oh, there is some information uh, in that strategy. Because if you just see a round blob effectively, then um, there wouldn't be any information content in that strategy. And even though it might have some really good uh, results somewhere, it, it doesn't really it doesn't really have any merit uh in terms of uh, what it can do most likely. Well, before we dig too deep into this, um, I think it might be helpful if uh, we can hear a little bit about your past and sort of where you're coming from. So, you know, I know you've had an interesting path leading into trading. I think you worked uh, with Rolls-Royce at some point. You've been uh, an engineer with something to do with airplanes and that type of thing. Um, yeah, just give us a little bit of context about some of the things you were working on before coming into trading. Yes. Uh, so um, I've actually done a physics PhD in the UK and then um, went into uh, several uh, parts of electronics, uh, mostly microchip design. So um, I was part of a startup company in Wales uh, developing microchips. And um, from that, I moved on uh, because I got a um, position at Oxford Uni and did research there and some lecturing uh, and got more and more into computer modeling. And um, doing that work at uh, Oxford, I also got a call from Rolls-Royce that were interested in me uh, doing some work for them uh, on airplane engines. So I spent my time at Rolls-Royce um, developing airplane engines, but I realized that the big stuff wasn't 100% for me. And so um, I moved back into microchip design. I was always more interested in the small things and came to Australia, uh, worked here in the uh, microchip uh, world as well, um, developing um, or working on some of the developments on some of the uh, world's fastest inkjet printers. And during that time, um, I developed an interest for trading. Initially, I had actually done a bit of day trading before during my PhD just to support my small salary there. And that uh, was pre-2000, so the times were pretty good for some intraday trading. And um, when I uh, started this during my time in, in Australia working on, on microchips, I just uh, thought, well, I'm building all these computer models. Um, I'm using a lot of uh, distributed uh, server clusters to do this, lots of data. Uh, why should I not try to uh, build some models that can trade for me on the stock market automatically? So basically build, and ro build a robot. Uh, now, I, at the time, really didn't know if any of that existed. So I just got started. And uh, bit by bit, I learned more and more about uh, finance and trading and, and 
what what it all does um and also i learned a lot more about uh, how to set up software systems and uh, compu computational um work because one thing is uh, when you are a physicist and you build models um and another is to actually build proper computer systems that can support a automated trading system so that was really my um my beginnings and then uh, finally i came up with some interesting models um i hooked them up to my broker um and ran them for a while and and whilst doing that travel the world and learn more about trading until uh eventually i ended up getting some jobs in the financial industry so that's that's basically that okay and those jobs were with a prop firm correct i mean you don't have to name the firm if you're not comfortable with that but it, it was with a prop firm wasn't it uh that's right um initially i started working um for some um investment um funds and um hedge funds and my last job was for a sydney prop trading firm okay and did you find i don't know if this question might be a bit of a stretch but were there any transferable skills or any similarities between what you were doing in the physics world, which crossed over to helping you uh, or gave you some advantage with what you were doing in trading, like the models you were developing, etc.? Mm, absolutely. Um, initially, when when I started, um, I think I wouldn't have been able to build any models without uh, my background, my numerical background in. Um, physics and computer modeling now i don't think that uh physics uh, directly impacts uh, trading because whilst um, um the laws of nature are kind of immutable um the laws of the market are very mutable and they change a lot and so we have uh, different dynamics going on there often however um a lot of uh the numerical skills, the uh, IT skills, and also um, reading data, understanding data, and also um, being able to read um, financial research papers uh, that are often quite mathematical has really helped me uh, to develop my own models quite to a great extent. And I don't think uh, with my without my training, I would have been able to do that quite the same way. So, I'd, I'd like to spend a bit of time speaking with you, Thomas, about strategy development and, and things related to that. Uh, you know, I, I know we started getting into it right at the beginning, but just to backtrack a little bit. So, I mean, I, I'm sure there's going to be some things which uh, you've got to be a bit careful about talking about, um, you know, respecting where you've worked previously. But um, can you just give us like a, a high level overview or a bit of an idea about the the types of strategies that you've worked on in the past like you don't have to go into granular detail but just give us a bit of an idea on the sorts of strategies that you've worked on sure so initially i started with much more trend following strategies because that seemed to be the most obvious uh, thing and also there was a bit of literature available and so i initially built those uh, in first for just a few um a few different instruments and then for larger uh, universes of portfolios so i learned how to um how to assign um the the positions correctly or more or less uh, obviously you can never assign them fully correctly but 
how to calculate position sizing properly and so on. And um, then more and more, uh, and, and until recently, I moved more into a factor modeling type uh, approach uh, with uh, my, my strategies. So I look at uh, universes of stocks, um, find interesting factors that might um, have some sort of correlation uh, with the uh, returns of these stocks. And then um, I rank uh, the stocks accordingly and uh, trade, trade those according to their ranking and also assign, um, assign portfolio positions according to their ranking. Um, and there's also another approach where you pre-select a, a certain portfolio and then you do research trying to find certain um, factors that will describe uh, the returns of that stock to some extent and then uh, effectively run your factors on that portfolio and rather than um, rather than in the previous approach uh, selecting uh, certain stocks from a specific universe. I hope that makes sense. It does. Yeah, yeah. So when you're talking about factors um, or the sort of factors that you're using, are they still looking at price action and price in of itself? Some of them do, but um, uh, more and more I um, move away to alternative factors uh, because um, it's it's quite well known now that, that price action gets harder and harder to trade on. Um, so um, I get quite a bit of inspiration from, from academic papers, I have to say, uh, but also from some of the blogs. And recently or a while ago, uh, I was really interested in different types of sentiment and how you could trade that. So there's a whole lot of sentiment providers out there. Um, and hence, you, we, we do get different types of sentiment. We get the Twitter feeds, we get um, sentiment from news articles and so on. So they make, for example, uh, very interesting factors. There are also interesting factors uh, based on uh, actual machine learning. So you could, you could, for example, train a machine learning tool uh, to basically take uh, different uh, price actions of, of different um, different assets or, or whatever you're interested in, and then see how how this can uh, predict uh, returns in your underlying assets. And sometimes uh, you find quite interesting uh, behaviors there. Now, I found that machine learning by itself mostly cannot, um, you, you cannot run a full strategy just purely on machine learning. There have to be other um, factors as well, but machine learning itself definitely makes for interesting uh, factors in, in my models. These alternative factors, can you give us a few examples of those? I think you maybe just did. Um, you described sentiment there. You described uh, machine learning is something, is a tool that can be used as well. Can you give us an example of maybe some other alternative factors that you've found to be helpful? So there's, um, there's several uh, providers of interesting uh, alpha factors out there now. And um, some of the uh, some of the more well-known factors that you can uh, get from these companies are, for example, um, 
stuff like uh, coverage of uh, car cars in front of uh, car parks of, of uh, big retail stores. Um, or you may have heard of the... Um, uh, there's, there's sometimes in, in oil refineries you have lids, and you can um, you can figure out by using satellite imagery uh, whether uh, those oil refineries are really full or they're quite empty, and then you can say something about um, um, the industry uh, as a whole and get some interesting data. There's uh, things like crop data, satellite crop data um, that are very interesting. And there's all sorts of other uh, interesting things. A lot of that that I'm more interested in now has to do with a uh, with a satellite imagery and and what you can do with that actually. So these, so you yourself are using satellite imagery, or you you've played around with it? Yes, yes, I have. So so this is something that that I'm really interested in at the moment, and I'm playing around with it. I'm still working on some of those models it it takes quite some time to um to really get them to work because it's it's an incredible amount of data that you have to sift through and it it takes time it takes time to com- for the computing and so on and then to correlate that uh, with what you think uh, it might be correlated to but it's it's definitely very fascinating and i'm always interested in in those new technologies and fascinated by that so i rather spend uh, time um, looking at those technologies and looking at those new ways of doing things uh, also uh, for out of my own interest in and in actually doing something that i really enjoy doing of course yeah and and how I mean, you don't have to tell me explicitly, but how much is that data? I, I don't imagine it's cheap, and I imagine it's probably out of reach for the majority of people, wouldn't it? Well, you'd be surprised. Uh, some of it is actually quite freely available. Uh, quite a bit uh, is published by governments. So governments often have a um, policy uh, where they disclose a lot of free data and it's more a question of finding those data. Uh, so the most difficult thing uh, for me is to actually find some of those data sets. And I'm working um, with some people that are more in contact with uh, what uh, governments provide um, also. And uh, out of that, um, we sometimes get quite interesting ideas of where to go. Governments aren't providing satellite imagery, though, are they? Is, are you talking about like alternative data sets? Um, yes, yes. For example, so obviously there's also providers that providers that uh, do provide uh, Im- satellite imagery data sets, like the ones I've said, um, where you look at uh, car parks and so on. And they obviously do the um, the data crunching already for you. Uh, but those data, yes, they're, they're very expensive. And for uh, a typical retail investor, uh, that would be completely out of reach, I would say. Um, but as I said before, uh, there is quite a lot of government websites that provide very interesting data on on many, many different topics, probably because of the freedom of information um, um, policies. And so there's a lot of interesting things you can get from those websites. And then I imagine once you actually get your hands on those 
data sets that uh, the next challenge is to actually clean that data. Correct, yes. One of the most difficult things really is to go through those data and, and, and do something with them and uh, actually get something out of them that is reasonably meaningful. Because often, you know, those data sets are either really large or, or they're not necessarily very good. Uh, they're, uh, they have lots of, um, gaps in them and so on. And so it's, it's quite time consuming, but it's, it's one of the, um, the things that, that bring me back to my work as a physicist. It's that, that detective work, um, figuring out if there's something interesting in there and then, um, see if I can make use out of it. Yeah. And as this data is coming from the, so these are alternative data sets we're talking about. We're not talking about, you know, open, high, low, close prices that you get every day from the market. You know, these are data sets which aren't updated every day, I, I presume. Um, does that present a, a, a new set of challenges in of itself? Like, you know, is how up to date is that data? Do, does that matter? You know? Uh, yes, it's abs- absolutely. It does matter a lot. And, um, as I said before, these, uh, depending on what those data are, um, some of them um, can be used as factors in a model, uh, depending on, on what you use. Um, so those data are obviously not um, something that you can use for a minute-by-minute minute, uh, trading strategy. They're more long-term um, strategies. Um, and in that sense, um, they're... they're you could say more fundamental driven strategies, but um, I'm actually more and more coming back to be interested in those because specifically as a retail trader, it's, it's not easy to, um, to make money in, in, in the short term um, because of the spreads and commissions that you have to pay. And so longer term, um, data sets, uh, in my opinion, have become more and more interesting again. Um, plus the fact that I find that uh, price action gets more difficult to trade on these days. Although having said that, uh, some of my uh, factors in my models do rely on price action as well. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the US markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. 
Well, let's start stepping through your frameworks. Obviously, we've spent a little bit of time here talking about different data sets. And once you've got the data, you've cleaned the data, what's the next step in your in your framework for strategy development? So I've, um, I'm using a, um, a framework that is basically a factor tester. And there's, there's some interesting, um, I, I've built my own modified from, from something uh, that I, that I found open sourced. Um, but, um, there's actually some interesting open source projects out there where you can test factors. And one of them, uh, that, that I would like to mention is one called Alpha Lens. So, um, in Alpha Lens, you can basically, um, put in your, um, your universe of, of, uh, price data. Uh, as well as uh, the factors that you would like to investigate. And then you can see it, it spits out basically a whole lot of analytics on those factors and uh, different portfolios that you can trade over time. So that's one of the really useful tools. So that that's really the first step. And um, once uh, this is the case, um, I use a, a my own um, algos uh, in Python, uh, mostly written in Python, um, where I then get the data in um, and um, so so the price data and also my uh, my factor data, and then I set up the algorithms, and that is then connected uh, to my broker for trading. Okay, can we just go into how you test these factors a little bit more? And just in, just so we don't lose anyone, do you mind explaining what a factor is? Like, what does that mean? Okay, so um, what is a factor? A factor is effectively something that is somehow correlated uh, to the returns of the price of, say, a given uh, stock. Let's say... We have, um, just for the sake of uh, simplicity, we have uh, the price of gold and we say, well, the price of gold may be correlated somehow um, to the price of oil. And what we can then do is we can take that price of oil uh, as a factor and uh, apply or we do what you call a um, Spearman rank correlation. And then we get uh, something uh, from that factor, which is called the information coefficient. And this information coefficient uh, tells us something about how much information that factor has to uh, um, to the returns of the underlying uh, asset that we would like to trade. And if the if the information coefficient is sufficiently uh, large and interesting, um, we might considering trading that because it just simply means that um, it has, or the change of this factor has some sort of impact on the change of the price of the underlying asset. Does that make sense? Yeah, so this information coefficient, that's essentially what you're using to gauge whether this factor has any predictive power. Correct, correct. So um, there is a um, an interesting formula, um, and it's from a um, from a book called Active Portfolio Management, um, and it basically says that the information ratio, which is 
in some ways similar to the Sharpe ratio is the information coefficient uh, times uh, the square root of the breadth of our strategy. And when I say breadth of strategy, what I mean is um, how many assets do we trade and what's the, um, what's the trade frequency that we have. So the breadth is, is somehow uh, related to that. And so if we can increase the information coefficient, then we can usually increase the information ratio of our strategy. Um, but that's obviously not the only thing we also, um, it's also dependent on the, on our trade frequency and, um, how many assets we might trade. Let's say that you've, you have this factor which shown, has shown that it has some predictive power. Okay. So obviously we only have data historically. So you can see that it's been historically this factor has had some predictive power. What gives you confidence that that factor is going to have predictive power moving forward? Um, so, first of all, that you, you cannot necessarily be uh, very confident about this because you can never be confident about the future in any way. Um, the uh, the way to um, the way to do this once you have a few factors is to actually run a proper backtest. Um, so I have actually written my own uh, little backtesting platform, which uh, I have uh, even open source somewhere, but it's it's it hasn't got any um, it hasn't got any um, uh, manual with it, so it might be a bit tricky to use for people. But basically, uh, in order to um, actually determine whether a factor or group of them has any merit. Um, one of the things that I would still do is um, run uh, what I've explained to you earlier. Um, I, I separate my um, I separate my um, data into a training test period, and then um, run the uh, correlation between train and test, and see uh, whether um, and see what what the results are because you know my strategy itself still will have a whole bunch of parameters even if the factor in itself is not necessarily a parameter we, we will have probably a group of factors uh, that make up a strategy and these factors can obviously combine be combined in multiple ways so they can be added but they can be also combined in um, in different uh, ways they could even be multiplied uh, or, or whatever works uh, so all these things need to be tested, and um, so a good back test is really essential uh, to make sure that that what we are looking at really has any merit. Yeah, I guess now is probably a good point to ask how you how you reduce the possibility of overfitting. Like, how do you deal with that? Hmm. So there's um, there's really. Uh, several ways uh, of looking at it. And so I talked about this with you earlier and I'm not sure whether that was on record or not, but um, <laughs> uh, may I explain it again? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, go for it. One of the ways to do that is to um, separate your data into a train and test set um, and then um, run your strategies uh, with a, so do a parameter sweep basically and run um, 
that strategy with the or run the parameter sweep over your strategy and get the results. Uh, so which could be your uh, PNL, your sharp ratio, uh, or other metrics that you choose to use. And instead of um, then applying that uh, uh, to your um, test period, uh, just like to picking the best um, of your strategies or the most promising and applying that to your past test period, what you actually do is you um, take all the parameter sets that, that you had previously run in your train period and also run them through your test period. And then uh, what you do is you correlate um, the PNL values between your train and your test period, for example. And you have a look whether um, in those, those two periods have a correlation with each other. So if they do, and, and, and when, when I say this, I'm, I'm also saying I include um, uh, strategy performances that were really bad. So say we have an exceptionally negative P&L, um, we also want to look at that and we want to see whether um, our exceptionally negative P&L in our train period gives an, an exceptionally negative uh, P&L in our test period. And if that's the case, what that means is that our uh, strategy in, in the train period uh, holds some information uh, for what it does in the test period. And if there is this uh, overflow of information from the train into the test period on that level, uh, we can say that that strategy has some merit. And so this is my main, um, this is my main test for strategies to see whether uh, they are any good, whether I'm, um, they also help you to um, see whether you're overfitting uh, in your uh, tests, because um, if you have a decent correlation between train and test period PLs, for example, then you're most likely not uh, overfitting as much. Um, so if you just pick uh, a strategy at random, um, that seems to be good. Um, most likely, that that strategy will be overfit. But if you look at the whole, if you look at the whole lot and the bigger picture, so to speak, uh, you will get a very different sense of what that strategy is actually doing. Now, when I say that we get correlations between uh, train and test periods, don't don't expect to get uh, dead on straight lines. Um, that's most likely not the case. You will sometimes have uh, certain areas where um, your correlation is really good. So you quite often find that you get clusters uh, of uh, where you have a very strong correlation and then you will get clusters with less correlation. Um, but when you do this, you will usually get a very good overall sense uh, of how your strategy uh, might perform in the future. Okay. I'd just like to pick up on something you said a couple of minutes ago. You said that if you get a negative PNL in your um, training set, and you get a negative PNL using that same strategy in your testing set, that holds some information. I mean, what information can you take away from that? Well, that in itself uh, does not necessarily uh, that does not necessarily hold information in itself. Just when you if you pick out one specific data point. But the information really lies in in uh, looking at the bigger picture of of the overall data set. So, when you, for example, um, say, "Well, 
a strategy that performed really badly in my training set, but it's also performing really badly in my test set, uh, that means, oh, okay, so uh, that strategy or, you know, those parameter sets that I pick for my strategy, they perform in a similar way uh, in both time periods, uh, regardless of, of whether, you know, whether there's good performance or not. So if, if some of them perform really badly um, and some of them perform really well, what, what you can say for sure is that, oh, okay, so there is a correlation for wh how this parameter set does uh, performs in, in the period that I've tested in comparison uh, to the period going forward. And so that can give me much more confidence uh, because I say, well, whether it's a good parameter set or a not so good parameter set, uh, we will know uh, with some confidence uh, that it will perform in a similar way going forward. I just want to ask you, have you written about this kind of, this, this process or this framework? Is this, have you written about this on your website? Um, yes, I have actually, because of the conference at the QuanCon that I attended a few weeks ago, um, I built a little um I built a little uh, set of blog posts um, that talks exactly about this and a few more things. If anyone's interested, um, I talk about this in quite great detail on my blog posts on my website, AAA, my website, AAAquants.com. Um, so you could, um, you could have a look and, and see uh, if, if things are not clear, uh, everything is there with the code. Um, it points to a, a whole lot of, uh, of code that you can use uh, to uh, do your own tests, basically. Yeah, I'll make sure um, to include a few links to that um, in the show notes because, yeah, I know you've got like a series of posts kind of step-by-step walking through this, which might be helpful to some people if they're interested in this sort of thing and, and find it a little bit hard to keep up with. But um, uh, And just to be clear, your website is aaaquants.com, so it's not triple a as in the word triple it's aaaquants.com uh that's correct yes i actually i actually used to have quite a um quite a popular blog uh, previously but i had to shut this down uh, uh for my for my company um so unfortunately i couldn't have this any longer um so for all the people who used to read my blog i'm really really sorry but <laughs> i wasn't able to keep it up <laughs> oh that's a bummer so i'm just i'm just uh, basically with the with the new website and, and the new business that i just started um i just thought oh, it would be nice to uh you know start a few blog posts again and um, get some interesting information out there i mean none of this information is is really secret uh anymore um i think what um, what I've done was really just to take uh, what some people have done previously and um, and just put it into a format that is a little bit easier to understand because a lot of it is in its in its original essence really really academic and and quite difficult to grasp. But once you wrap your head around it, it's not actually that hard. So just continuing on this path here, I guess the the next thing I wanted to ask you about, how do you test for robustness? Um, okay, so so this is um, this is one of the ways you can test for robustness. The one I just explained, but there's a few others, and um, let me um, let me uh, talk of about a few more that that are, in my opinion, 
quite important. So one of them, I haven't really got much of a name for it, but I have seen it referred to as so-called Brack test, build, rebuild, and compare. And so what that does is it basically, um, if you have a, a strategy that you're interested in, you um, you take that strategy and you run it, um, say you have a 10-year period that you want to backtest it on, and perhaps you just uh, run it over different um, random or more or less random um, one-year periods within the 10-year period. And uh, for each of those uh, one-year periods, uh, you get a certain um, result. And you will end up, the more you do that, with a, a distribution of, of results. So, for example, a PNL distribution from all the different uh, strategies, uh, from all those different one-year periods. And, and so you could... Uh, it's 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 maybe a bit difficult to imagine. So you you're not just uh, starting then at year zero to year one, and then you go from year one to year two, but you start at random points in your ten year ten year cycle and just run that uh, strategy uh, for this one year in in any of the given points. And what happens is you end up with a um, P and L distribution, and this distribution has a mean. And that mean of that PNL distribution is usually, um, obviously you need to adjust it for the fact that you deal with shorter time periods, but given that you've done that, um, that mean will usually be a bit, um, a bit smaller. Uh, there will be a shortfall between that and the overall mean of the strategy you've been uh, running for the whole 10 year period. And quite often, um, when you look at the shortfall from, um, what you ran during the 10-year period uh, to your uh, distribution of the one-year period and a mean of that, um, you get a sense of um, what will be the shortfall uh, of your strategy going forward. So that's one of the the ways you can uh, look at uh, robustness of your strategies. Again, uh, it's somewhere referred to as the uh, BRAC, Build, Repilt and Compare test. Um, so uh, does that make does that make sense? It does make sense. Actually, it seems like quite a clever way to to look at a back test, like an alternative way. Yes, yes. You can obviously combine this also with what I said previously. So, okay, uh, you can put them in conjunction as well. So I, I know you explained this just then, but just so we're really clear on it, what extra insight are you going to get from from doing that rather than just looking at you know a ten year uh, a 10 year back test, let's say you're back testing over a 10 year period. Instead, you might be looking at 10 one year periods all kind of randomized. Yes. What, what extra information or insight is that going to give you? you? You said, I know, it's coming back to me. You mentioned it. It's going to show you some of the shortfalls of that strategy. What might be an example, some shortfalls that you might discover? So, so let's say, um, let's say you do this and you get a, a, a shortfall of, uh, 25% uh, look going forward and then um, you start running your strategy and it goes okay and then you end up in a drawdown that um, is a lot larger than what you expect. Uh, you might want to consider um, switching off your strategy because there might be something um, wrong with it. So um, one of the things that this uh, uh, test can give you is a sort of uh, metric of uh, what would be an acceptable shortfall going forward 
or uh, when it would be time uh, to switch off the strategy and to actually go back to the drawing board and go, oh, uh, what's, uh, what's really, you know, um, is there something happening here that I don't understand? And on the topic of robustness, um, I think you've, you've written a little bit about using Monte Carlo. Can you tell us a little bit about how you use uh, Monte Carlo for strategy development? So Monte Carlo is, is like a, a really broad term. It basically, uh, it, all that means is you use uh, somehow uh, randomized uh, parameters or, or randomized something. So for example, when I just explained the, the Brack test and I, I could uh, effectively have a randomized entry point for my one year period. Um, so I could say I start at day, uh, uh, 3,426 of my strategy. Um, so that would be effectively a Monte Carlo uh, approach, uh, just randomizing uh, the time periods that I test. Another um, Monte Carlo approach would be uh, when you do a parameter uh, sweep. So let's say you have um, three or four strategy parameters and you want to somehow, somehow, um, do a test. Uh, quite often what happens is if you have enough parameters, there is no way in the world you can actually cover all of those, um, all of those parameters. So, so meaning you can run through all the strategy parameters. Your back test would probably run a few years. Um, so what you could do is you could uh, randomize uh, the selection of those parameters. And, um, what happens is with Monte Carlo, it gives you a relatively uh, homogeneous coverage of your parameter space. So instead of just covering them with a, a rectangular grid, so to speak, um, you just choose uh, random points. Uh, so where you have parameter A, B, C, D um, randomly. And so you get a, a decent homogeneous coverage of your parameter space. I mean, there are some clusters there, but it's overall relatively homogeneous. And uh, one of the advantages that that has as well is that if you were to uh, use or run through all the parameters that you have, uh, say you have uh, four parameters and each one goes from uh, zero to, t or say from one to 10, you start with one, 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 then you do one, 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 two, one, 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 three, and so on. Um, over time, you end up with some sort of cube that keeps expanding um, and growing into your parameter space. Now, let's assume uh, the time for all those back tests takes far too long. You would have to switch it off. Um, then your whole uh, parameter sweep back test would have only covered a small cube. If you use um, if you use a Monte Carlo method, you could cover that space more evenly, more quickly, and you. Um, even if you have to terminate your whole parameter sweep early, you would still get a lot more information out of it than if you did that in a more structured, strict way where you just sweep through the parameters um, um, from the smallest to the largest. Right, right, okay. Yeah, I mean, we're starting to get <laughs> a little bit technical here, I think. <laughs> yes, yes. But it's actually, it's technical in some ways, but it's also, um, it's also quite practical because if you do this, you just end up uh, getting faster results, really. So it, it's just, uh, it's just a better way to, to do it and to get really quick results rather than 
um, um, trying to go through everything and wait for a long, long time at the end to terminate it because it takes too long. Are you ever worried about data mining when you're developing strategies? Like, is that something that ever crosses your mind? Absolutely, yes. Um, I mean, it's 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 really uh, uh, one of the big problems, and and that's that's very much exactly why I'm doing um, the techniques that that I've described to you. So they will really help to um, give get get to grips with data mining bias. Um, of course, you can never fully eliminate all data mining biases. Uh, you can only uh, try to make sure as much as you possibly can to reduce it. So, um, so it's always a worry in the back of the mind. And when you finally run strategies, uh, you, you can never be a hundred percent sure that you have fully eliminated data mining bias unless you do something like not use any parameters or you just randomly pick a parameter set in the hope that it'll work. But other than that, it's, it's, very, very difficult uh, to do this. And of course, um, there, there's this, uh, there's this uh, thought that, you know, you should just come up with something that makes sense and test it a little bit and then run it. That also, in my opinion, has a lot of merit. Um, since I come more from a physics background, I'm always more interested to drill into these things a bit deeper and try to understand them deeper. That's why I choose to approach that I choose, basically. Yeah, actually, that's something I wanted to ask you because, um, you know, all the things you describe in here, it's very scientific, it's very quantitative. Why do you think that you've pursued this path as a trader? Like, you know, back, uh, I think it was around 2000, you said you were doing a little bit of hand trading and intraday uh, day trading, um, but, you know, your career, uh, you've through your career, you've pursued quantitative and algorithmic trading. What do you think that is? Do you think it's just something which best fits your nature? Do you not like the characteristics of discretionary trading? Yeah, I, I quite enjoyed, uh, uh, I quite enjoyed uh, discretionary trading when, when I did it. But uh, actually, uh, when I'm honest, I'm, I'm, I'm just equally interested in technologies and, and how you can use scientific ideas uh, to uh, get get something out of a trading strategy and I guess in some ways I'm, I'm also interested very much always in future technologies uh, so I was always really fascinated by how you could possibly use uh, some of those scientific methods to extract uh, uh, viable trading strategies and um, it's definitely uh not not always an easy approach in fact quite often you know a trader with a good intuition will have often quite an edge over uh, a discretionary trader over someone who does um things in that sort of more quantitative way but uh, both of these uh, things have their own um merits and their own characteristics and they are both um in some ways valid in the market. So I'm, I'm just simply more interested in, in that. And then I have to say, like, I have this, this, this inherent fascination with seeing, um, some, um, some of those strategies, uh, move in the market completely autonomous. 
and wondering sometimes uh, why they are doing the things they are doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and I'm glad you you mentioned that uh, you're interested in new technologies and that sort of thing. Uh, I know one of those things which you may have been referring to there is artificial intelligence and uh, quantum computing. You know, I'd love to spend a few minutes talking about those subjects. It's not something we've spent... Uh, a great deal of time discussing on this podcast in the past. So I think it might be uh, interesting to, you know, make the most of this opportunity as you know a bit about those things. Sure, sure. What's, you know, what's piqued your interest in artificial intelligence? Like what involvement do you have in it? Is it something that you work on and implement or like, yeah, how, how have you got interested in it? Um, it's definitely something that I got more and more interested in in the in recent years, uh, simply because it's just something that is uh, really one of the big up and coming technologies, uh, and it's already been used very successfully in um, many other fields. And you know, particularly uh, if you know uh, if you look at the Googles and the Facebooks and and face recognition. Uh, the series, voice recognition, and so on. Now, a lot of uh, people in the uh, space of of um, machine learning and AI think that oh, all we need to do is get a whole lot of data and then apply them uh, to our machine learning system, and then we can predict the stock market. Um, but but unfortunately, that's that's not quite the case because, unlike for example, uh, if you do uh, face recognition. Um, the dynamics of the stock markets change, whereas the dynamics of human faces uh, may change over hundreds of thousands of years, but definitely not over um, hours or minutes. So in that sense, um, using machine learning uh, for financial data sets is a much, much harder problem. And there is probably, I'm, I'm not aware of, of, of uh, many systems that actually use pure artificial intelligence to actually make full uh, trading decisions. I know there is um, there is some of it out there that is running and that probably produces uh, some uh, decent results. But uh, considering all the hype that's out there, uh, I think we've still got quite a long way to go until we really see fully-fledged uh, AI systems actually running uh, automated trading strategies. So that's something fairly fairly futuristic still. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's certainly a lot of hype around artificial intelligence, um, but it kind of seems like that hype is really just that. It's, it's a lot of hype. I mean, I don't know enough about the subject to really comment on it properly, but I... That's the kind of impression that I get, that there is a lot of hype around it. But like you said, you don't really know of anyone or uh, any places that are using pure artificial intelligence to run automated trading systems. I, I know of some I know of some systems that do this, but I think ultimately, um, ultimately um, underlying most strategies, there's still some, some economic rationale of some sort and and they're not not purely uh, mostly not purely driven by by artificial intelligence um but having said that uh those systems get smarter and smarter and people come up with new ideas and i 
definitely would not rule out that those systems are soon coming uh, to rule the markets. So I have I have a very strong feeling that uh, sooner or later these systems will definitely come in and um, they will actually uh, make trading decisions on a regular basis. When you say sooner or later, what sort of time frame are you talking about? I know this is very difficult to predict, but like are we talking maybe the next two to five years or are we talking about 10 to 20 years sort of thing? Um, I would say in 10 years you will see a lot of it. Um, but that obviously is just uh, my personal guess. Uh, of course, which, yeah. Which has no, no, <laughs> real, <laughs> no real basis other than guessing. And, and what's that going to mean for your regular trader? Like, is it something we, we need to care about? Like, or is it just going to be business as usual? Um, I think that the markets will definitely become a lot more efficient through it. Um, it will definitely uh, become a bit of a, a robot wars. Um, however, I, I think, you know, there, there's also always, you know, where there's uh, difficulties, there's opportunities. And I, I can see that perhaps there will be a point where, um, you know, you, you start people using robots and and perhaps a lot of them using the same more or less dumb robots uh, and there comes a point where where humans can see patterns again that weren't there before because they're caused by the robots and then uh, a savvy trader will uh, find new opportunities in that market uh, to deal with the robots somehow it's 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 not something that that i can say for sure but i i could see this happening definitely yeah I mean, that sort of thing kind of already happens in some ways, doesn't it? Like I know there's, you know, some traders, especially order book traders and uh, guys like that can, I don't know, try to sniff out like the HFT algos and that sort of thing and uh, trade around them, try and trick them and (laughs) play those games. And I mean, a a lot of it uh, that we see now is not particularly sophisticated. And uh, at the moment, I'm, I'm quite interested in looking at uh, cryptocurrencies. And you see there's, because it's so easy to, to hook up an algo to cryptocurrency, there's a lot of those um, games happening. And, you know, you, you can see even in the last year or so, from what I've seen, the, the, the ways people uh, run their algos on crypto uh currency trading they they have become quite a bit more sophisticated and um i guess the other thing that that is still there at the moment is that there's not many rules uh, to play by so people can come up with all sorts of things that probably would be highly legal uh, in uh, any other stock market um but they're still they're still uh, quite acceptable in cryptocurrency trading so I, I think we're going to see a lot of interesting movement uh, in that space in the near future. Okay. And the other thing I, I mentioned that you had an interest in was uh, quantum computing. Uh, what is quantum computing like? What are we even talking about when we when we bring that up? It's it's interesting. Um, I, it it really started uh, that uh, with my uh, meetup group, with Cyber Traders. We decided to. Uh, organized the world's first uh, uh, quantum computing hackathon or quackathon as we called it. Um, so it uh, basically a quantum computer is a new type of system uh, where you have um, it you can imagine it's it's a very highly parallelized uh, computing system 
So in a normal computer, you deal with a zeros and ones at at the very lowest level, um, where you know if you wanted to make a calculation, you have to feed it a zeros and ones sequentially. Uh, in a quantum computer, it's a bit different be- because of quantum physics. Uh, zeros and ones are what you call superimposed, and so you can you can build these these really large uh, sets of numbers that all exist at the same time. So, for example, if you have one um, quantum bit, which is the equivalent perhaps of a transistor in a classical computer, you would have a zero and a one at the same time. And if you have two qubits, you would have two zeros and two ones at the same time, which is already um, makes up four numbers. It's uh, two to the power of two. Uh, but if you have 10 of them, you already have uh, two to the power of ten numbers, which is um, a lot more. And and if you imagine that you have uh, five hundred of them, you have um, basically parallel computing power that exceeds anything that is currently imaginable. Now, um, quantum computers are still extremely uh, in its infant state, and um, there have been a few attempts to commercialize them. Uh, one notable one is called D-Wave uh, from Canada. But also at, at the moment, IBM um, open sourced uh, one of their uh, five-bit quantum computers. So you can actually do uh, submit your quantum computing problems uh, as a normal person to IBM on this uh, five-bit computer, and they're going to solve them for you on, on their quantum machine. Um, Again, this is this is still really new, but this is a up and coming technology, and it's it's moving with a surprising speed. So, um, obviously, as a physicist, I'm very interested in um, in that. Now, uh, for most of us, we we won't have to worry about uh, quantum computers taking over yet. But again, in in a couple of years, we will see more and more of that uh, coming along and uh, solving. Uh, difficult problems. One of the uh, things that that quantum computers particularly good at is uh, solving a specific type of uh, optimization problem. And probably for most people that will be a little bit uh, too um, over the head. It's called NP-hard, but but it's a problem which is quite common. Um, So for example, um, there's this uh, called a traveling salesman problem where you effectively try to find the shortest path for a salesman between uh, many different cities. And this problem is actually incredibly difficult to solve. If you have something like 20 cities, it takes you more than the age of the universe already to solve that exactly. But a quantum computer could do that really fast. Why does it take so long to solve? It's one of those um, problems where you have an an uh, when you when you have enough cities, for example, you have an enormous number of different possibilities, and there is no uh, there is no specific algorithm to solve this. So you would have to really, if you wanted to solve this exactly, you would have to run through a whole lot of trial and error, and that would take a long time. Uh, but interestingly, problems like this also appear in finance. So, for example, if you wanted to do Say you had 10 assets and you wanted to to do an arbitrage where you move money from one asset to the next, to the next, to the next, and you wanted to see whether you come out uh, with a positive P&L. 
Um, that's also another uh, version of the traveling salesman problem. And that could be solved uh, quite efficiently with a quantum computer. Mm. <laughs> yeah, then um, uh, difficult portfolio optimization problems as well. So one of the things that isn't really um, solvable is a, a multi-time frame uh, portfolio optimization. It's, it's very, very hard to uh, solve problems like this computationally. And again, quantum computers could really speed this process up very easily. We're not there yet, but we're not that far off, I would say. Yeah, okay, okay. So these, uh, these um, hackathons that you're running or that you have run in Sydney there, how are you doing that? Like, how do you have access to quantum computers? So um, we were lucky to um, team up with a company that runs the, um, at, the, at the time when we ran it, the only uh, available quantum computer was called a D-Wave. And um, it was a, a quantum computer that was situated uh, in the US at Lockheed Martin. So we obviously wouldn't be able, uh, we wouldn't uh, bring the whole quantum computer uh, over to Sydney. But we would just uh, have uh, access to it uh, through a um, link. Now, for the sake of, of our hackathon, whilst we did actually have access to this uh, quantum computer, most of uh, the assessment that we did uh, in order to find a winner was uh, through uh, simple or through actual classical computer models. So we were running um, people's submissions uh, through these models rather than through the actual um, quantum computer. Um, and it was more really about uh, learning how to, how do you program some, some machine like this? Um, there was, we had a few experts there, uh, some guy who wrote his PhD on a specific uh, algorithm that he programmed. And so we had mostly uh, people, a uh, few people from universities, uh, also some from finance, uh, all trying to um, uh, build those build those little programs and come up with something that actually works. It was very very interesting, and what you realize is that um, it's it's not easy. Uh, we we definitely need a new type of programmers uh, to understand these systems really well in the future. Yeah, I bet. And that D wave you're talking about, um, how big is that? It's about the size of a garage. Wow. Okay. So uh, at the moment, um, they're not. They're not small, um, mostly because the actual chip is, is just as big as a normal computer chip, but all the periphery uh, to cool it down uh, is very big. So um, what happens is these chips, in order to operate, they need to, uh, they need to operate uh, close to absolute zero. And all the, uh, all the periphery uh, that makes up the garage size is basically to cool down the chip and uh, keep it cool and stable and also um, isolate the chip from uh, cosmic rays and, and other interferences so it can actually operate properly. So most of the quantum computers, actually not the quantum computer, but all the systems that sit around it. Right. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, it is fascinating. <laughs> so what happens when we start to pair artificial intelligence with quantum computing? What happens then? Mm, this, is, this is definitely something that is going to happen because when you when you look at uh, artificial intelligence, a lot of it 
in in its core so so if you look at neural networks and so on in its core uh, there lies a um optimization problem um so you have uh, so called weights in those uh, artificial intelligence nodes and what you want to do is to minimize uh, certain errors in those now um at the moment this is done uh, mostly with methods called uh, stochastic gradient descent but uh, you can see that there is actually a um there's actually room for um this new quantum technology to make that far more efficient and much much faster and also parallel so um once people are starting to combine the two technologies i can't even imagine what we're going to see i don't think anyone at the moment can imagine uh what the um what the future will bring when those technologies actually start to uh, come into our lives yeah it's pretty incredible it's pretty incredible they will definitely change finance uh, a lot as well all right. Well, let's uh, let's wind things down, um, Thomas. I just want to ask you one last question. Uh, just going back to algorithmic trading for a moment. Just one last question to take us out here. Through all the years you've been working in the field and and working with others, and you know even the little bit of consulting that you you've started to do now. Is there anything you've noticed which less experienced algorithmic traders tend to often miss or neglect? I think. I think what's important is uh or that that's that's my finding uh to really uh find out your own style that there's there's so many different ways you can do things and I I think it's important to to find your own style so so what I'm doing is not necessarily suitable for for most people uh, they probably would wouldn't find it particularly interesting um and I think when you when you uh, go on that path of, of uh, building machines that, that trade on the stock market, um, what what you really should do is uh, see what what really suits you. Whether you know you like uh, more more simple models, but um, make them do them really well, or, or you use really complex uh, data analysis tools. Uh, figure out what what really um, what really makes you uh, interested and what makes you happy and keeps you going. And uh, do that uh, rather than trying to uh, do things that might not appeal to you. There's, there's so many ways to to make this work, um, but find your own um, find your own style. Totally, yeah. And I mean, that's that's become just incredibly apparent to myself as well from doing this podcast. Just you know, it, it's hard for me to say that any two traders on this podcast. Uh, trade the same way. I mean, yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of similarities and they there are traders who trade in similar ways, but everyone does things a little bit differently, you know, just what feels right for them. So, no, I appreciate you coming on the podcast, Thomas. It's been- Thank you for having me. An awesome conversation. Um, uh, where can listeners go uh, if they want to find out a little bit more about you? I mentioned your website earlier, uh, AAA quants.com are you also on twitter or linkedin or anything like that um i'm i'm on linkedin um my name just tom stark um i do uh, i also uh have a a a a quants on twitter um so you could follow that if you would like to other than that i'm not uh, overly present on social media uh, but uh, you could always uh, contact me through my website there's also uh a GitHub page called uh, 
AAA quants. Um, so if you go github.com uh, slash AAA quants, you find a few interesting uh, bits and pieces there uh, if you're interested. And yeah, that, that's pretty much uh, that's pretty much it. Okay. No, good, good. So, um, you know, everyone listening to this, as you know, I'll dig up all these links and put them in the show notes. Perhaps, uh, perhaps one last thing. Um, I'm also running um, uh, workshops for Quantopian. Um, so, uh, it, at the moment, uh, mostly in Sydney. Um, so, I've been recently running advanced, advanced uh, Quantopian workshop and also the basic ones. So, if you're interested in coming to one of those, we usually uh, give a lot of value there. So look out for them and they're often quite good fun as well. Okay. I know you just had one of those recently. Is there another one coming up? Um, there's probably another one coming up. We haven't uh, planned it yet, but uh, that's that's basically because I've been uh, very busy. Oh, finally, uh, as I mentioned, uh, we also have a meetup group called Cyber Traders uh, Sydney. Um, so we meet in slightly irregular intervals, but usually every few weeks. Um, so if you uh, would like to uh, uh, say hello, also please come by, and uh, you're you're more than welcome. It's it's usually run at Fishburners uh, co-working space, and they're normally good fun. We have interesting speakers, and um, often we we meet and socialize afterwards. So okay, cool. Now those uh, those Quantopian. Uh, workshops whereabouts is there like a page of upcoming events on the is it on the quantopian website or are they best to check your website yes the, they uh, the best uh, the best way to look is on the quantopian website they usually have a page of upcoming events and so those events will probably be advertised there so if you wanted to see whether there's one coming uh, please have a look at the quantopian website very good. Very good. Okay. All right, Thomas, Great. let's wrap that up there and um, okay. enjoy your weekend. We'll talk soon. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Bye. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders, but rest assured there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes, and we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders.